Well, it's um, my privilege to be able to get back into 2 Corinthians this morning in our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. So I invite you this time, take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The title of our message this morning is The Ministry of Light, The Ministry of Light. And I'll be reading um, verses 4 through 6. Sorry, verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4 1 says this Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. In the sight of God. And even if God, even, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, as we come to this section of 2 Corinthians, some have called this section really from chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to chapter 7, the great digression, because... Paul set out to write the Corinthians to deal with some of the false teachers, to deal with uh, the issue of giving, and to deal with his apostolic authority, which he does later on in the book. But he begins, and he, he, he ends up talking about the ministry, and he gets sort of sidetracked, it seems, divinely inspired sidetrack, or where he is talking about the ministry. And... When we see this amazing discourse on the Christian ministry, uh, though it seems that he has in mind those who were against him and they need to be corrected, the emphasis just keeps on writing, keeps on glorying in the privilege of being able to minister on behalf of Christ. And one of the keys to understanding this section, because it can get quite confusing, is to try and piece together what some of the false accusations against Paul might have been. And so we have talked about this before. I want to open up this morning just by asking, what were some of the things that the false teachers were saying against Paul? Or what were some of the things that the people in Corinth were saying against Paul? Yeah, that he was weak in his, his preaching. We've, we've quoted before 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, where it says, for they, uh, they say that his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So what they're saying is that sometimes he's very bold, even in his teaching uh, personally or in his, especially in his writing. But as a person, he's just an unimpressive person. That was one of the issues that they had with Paul. What else did they have? No credibility. No credibility. Yeah, he started out in... 
in Second uh, Corinthians chapter three. Take a look back one chapter, Second Corinthians three verses one and two. Are we are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you? You are a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. In other words, do I need some sort of letter of recommendation uh, for you? Uh, am, am, am I somebody who has no credibility? As we come to chapter four. Verses 1 through 18, the entire chapter here, some of the accusations seem to be, again, we, we gather this from what he's talking about, and uh, he's not really defending himself, he's glorying in the ministry, but we learn a lot about the ministry, and it just seems like this whole section keeps on being fed uh, as a defense of his, of his ministry, of who he is, because he was being attacked. But some of the, the accusations seem to be that Paul's ministry just seems to have a lot of problems. People would say, oh, yeah, hey, what do, you, what do you know about the Apostle Paul's ministry? Yeah, not a very good ministry. It's just, it just has problem after problem after problem. I mean, he, he's quite open about it, you know. Five times he received 39 lashes. Five times, you know, and uh, he was stoned. He was left for dead. He was shipwrecked. Not just once, three times. I mean, the guy's not a very good traveler. Uh, he, he obviously is not very, you know, people get quite offended at what he says. And, uh, you know, he kind of moves around a lot. Um, you know, he seems to, you know, some might have been saying he even hides the truth. He, uh, he believed that they believed to, that he downplayed the Mosaic Covenant because those who came after him were Judaizers. And they were trying to say that you needed to become a Jew first in order to be saved. They were teaching works righteousness. And so while they're trying to undo Paul's teaching, they're criticizing him for saying, well, he didn't really tell you everything. It's kind of cryptic. It's kind of, he was hard to understand. And in addition to that, it's it's easy to see that he's hard hard to understand because most of the people that he evangelized never came to faith in Christ. You know, we look at Paul and we say, wow, this guy, I mean, oh, the whole Mediterranean, the world, and, and, and look what took off. But more than likely, these were very small congregations that began and then later grew. And when you consider the fact that he typically, he he. He said in Romans 1 that he, the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek. He would go preach in the synagogue, but very few Jews were coming to faith in Christ. And that would have been easy fodder for his critics who were trying to say that you needed to become Jewish first in order to become a Christian because they could say that, well, Paul, you know, he would have more converts if he just preached the Mosaic Covenant and that, that you guys could be, uh, you know, Gentile proselytes coming into Judaism. Imagine what the church would be like if all of Judaism really did embrace him, if they really did embrace the Messiah. We believe he's the Messiah, but we don't want to just destroy everything that God established in the Old Testament. I mean, after all, you know, you look at 4,000 years of God's relationship with man, and it all involved Israel, and it seems like he's just downplaying Israel and the Mosaic Covenant. So these guys were preaching the Old Covenant, which is why in chapter 3, Paul spends so much time talking about the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it's clear from 1 Corinthians 4 that when he looks at this, he still has in mind the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but he's starting to think also about the way that people look at the world. And one thing that's clear is that when Paul looked at the world, 
everybody fell into one of two categories. Either you were in the light or you were in darkness. Either you were in the light or you were in darkness. Either you were blind or you saw the truth. It's helpful for us, I think, to think about those two realms, but it's easy to forget. I was studying this passage this week, and uh, I uh, found myself on the phone with uh, a pharmacy uh, because, um, I don't know, where do I start? I guess, um, (laughs) so I had ordered some medication at the beginning of the month. The pharmacy had it in. But the, the payments, the copays were super high. And I'm like, whoa. And they said, well, if you order it through our mail order program, it'll be like half the price. So I'm like, well, how do I do that? So they guide me. So I, I call that. I sign up for that. They say it's going to be three to five business days. I don't know what a business day is because I, I work every day. But I just, I'm so, but it's fine. So a week should cover that, right? So I'm, you know, first week goes by nothing. And then, and then, Two weeks go by, you know, and I get one bottle of baby aspirin, ba- like baby aspirin, you know, like the little ones that I took when I was four, you know, and, and, and so this is, I mean, the doctors have been, you know, like six or seven pres- prescriptions for me right now uh, for my, my heart condition, and I'm like, well, they prescribed it, it's probably worth taking, so, um, but finally, Friday, I call and I speak to the mail order place, and they say, oh, no, your prescriptions never went through. And I'm like, oh man! So my son's in the room, and I'm, I'm, uh, and so now I call the pharmacist, and I'm talking to the pharmacist, and my son just tells me because he could tell. I think maybe I was starting to get a little bit frustrated, <laughs> and he says, "Dad, just remember, this pharmacist may not be a Christian, you know, which is always good when your children, you know, give you parenting advice." So, um, so I, I, you know, I say to the lady. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm real nice, and I tell her about the problem. She goes, you know what you need to do? She goes, I know you. And I'm like, okay. She goes, and I know your wife, and your wife's super nice. And she says, and you're nice, and you're too nice. You need to call up that mail order place, and you need to shout, and you need to scream. And I said, you know, I was thinking the same thing. My, my son's right here, and he told me I need to be really nice. She goes, no, that's not going to work. And so, so... I hung up and I called uh, the mail order place. And I said, I, and I got another guy and I said, yeah, so I just talked to the pharmacist. She told me I should shout and be very upset. My son is here. He wants me to act like Christ and he wants me to be Christ-like. And, and, and the guy pauses and he goes, well, I'm really glad you're not shouting. And so I... I <laughs> When you think about the world as everybody is either in complete darkness, blind to the truth, or they are in the light, your world changes, your conversations change. And when you forget that, you are less prone to be like Christ. So as we come to this passage and we look at you know, this, and we, we, we think, you know, even in the church, there are unbelievers. Paul's writing to a church that had false teachers. We know from Matthew 13, verse 24, the parable of the wheat and tares, that there are unbelievers even in the church. And so with every relationship we have, though the church is a place for believers to come and worship together corporately, we need to be mindful 
every one of us. There is no middle ground. There are no neutral seats. Every person, their heart is either blinded and they're in darkness or they're in the light. And in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we really see four distinctions of the new covenant ministry that should encourage you as you desire to shine the light of Christ in a dark world. Four distinctions of the new covenant ministry that should encourage you as you desire to shine the light of Christ in a dark world. And the first distinction is this. The new covenant ministry perseveres. A a true biblical ministry perseveres. Verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. When he says, this ministry. He's referring back to what he's just been talking about in chapter 3, the new covenant ministry. He's discussed it in detail, a ministry that's much more glorious than the old covenant ministry. The old covenant ministry, even though the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai and he came down and his face shone with the glory of God because he had seen just even the back of God and that glory was so bright that people couldn't look at him, even though that was a glorious glory, it was fading and it's nothing compared to the glory that is in Christ, to the new covenant ministry. And that was part of what he's been saying all throughout chapter 3. But he's talking about the new covenant ministry, which is better because it is clearer, it is permanent, it lasts longer, and it has hope. The old covenant ministry was one of condemnation of death because it it, it gave the law, which demands righteousness, and we're not righteous. The new covenant offers life, God's spirit, internal desire to glorify God. It's the opening of the eyes of your heart. And so Paul says, since we have this ministry, this new covenant ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. That word lose heart in the original has the idea of losing enthusiasm or being discouraged or wanting to just give up. And as we've been working our way through the book, it's clear that this has not been an easy time for Paul. He has often talked about his sufferings. In fact, just turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just highlight a few verses. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, he opens the book talking about his suffering. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, he says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort in abundance through Christ. Look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So he talks about very first chapter. I don't want you to be unaware. We're suffering. We're struggling. The preachers that Paul was with, his companions and himself, were struggling. Second Corinthians two. Look at verse four. Second Corinthians two, verse four. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. And Second Corinthians two, verse thirteen. I had no rest for my spirit. One of the reasons he was so uptight and suffering so much is because the churches that he ministered to, like Corinth, and he he persevered and 
faithfully preached the word of God that people came along afterwards and twisted his words and attacked him. And people in those churches were turning away from what they knew to be true. And that was just wreaking havoc on his life. Which would just play into those who are his critics. Paul doesn't really have a very fruitful ministry. It's kind of fallen apart. You know, he always gets rocks thrown at him. He's, you know, been on a lot of missionary journeys, but he's never really been anywhere for, I mean, three years is the longest place he was ever, you know, in in Ephesus. But really, other than that, he just kind of constantly in trouble. And aren't you tired of hearing him whine? I mean, it's just verse after verse of how difficult things are. But Paul says that he doesn't lose heart. He's not discouraged. And there's, there's, there's no losing of enthusiasm for him. He is motivated. In fact, the motivating factor he mentions, it's in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4. Take a look. It's, it's a key that we should not give up. And that is, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. The mercy that Paul had received is what encourages him to persevere. Turn with me, a couple times today I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, but turn with me to Acts chapter 9. I think it'd be good because I think really as, as we need to be familiar with Paul's conversion story because it's kind of laid out here in chapter 4 theologically, but let's just listen to the story in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1 all the way down to verse 18. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says this, now Saul... This is Paul, formerly known as Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogues at Damascus, for him to, from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was not just content with persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, since the, since the persecution led them to go other places, he wanted to go to where they were and arrest them and bring them back. He felt that those who were preaching Christ were a huge threat to the truth, to Judaism. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love it that Jesus Christ identifies so closely with his church that he says, why are you persecuting me? And he said, verse 5, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And as he was there three days without sight, he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, get up. And go to the street called Straight and inquire the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision, uh, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, 
how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. You, You wonder why Paul uses terms like darkness and light because he was so much in the darkness that he thought that killing Christians was pleasing to God. And the light was so bright that it blinded him for three days. And finally, when God sent Ananias to him, scales fell from his eyes and he saw the truth and he understood and he realized how blind he truly was, how deceived he was. And he, more than anyone, realized how he didn't deserve to be a chosen instrument of God. He would have never said, yeah, God wanted me on his team because of how great I am. He was, his whole life was, I am unworthy. I am the chief of all sinners. I shouldn't be here. But God, in his great mercy, opened my eyes, took me out of darkness, placed me in the light, showed me where I was headed, how I was opposing Christ, who is God in the flesh, who is the Messiah. He showed me that I deserve eternal punishment in hell, and yet by his mercy, by his grace, he opened his eyes, and I repented of my sin, and I trusted in him, and I got baptized, and I am now just wanting to tell others who he is so that they might come into the light. That was Paul's life, and what, what motivated him to persevere was that mercy that he always remembered. None of us deserves to be here. Most of you know, many of you know that last week uh, my daughter was married, Amy was married, and uh, so she's, uh, you know, it's quite an adjustment. I gave her away. I just, just gave her away, just... Um, it wasn't quite as irresponsible as it sounds. It was, it was a really good guy. So, but um, uh, this week, you know, among other things, we're driving people back to the airport. And my other daughter, Allison, who's 14, was driving with me. And she's playing songs uh, on the way back uh, of songs that she wants at her wedding, you know. And she starts to tear up. And I said, uh, uh, are you missing Amy? She goes, oh, it's not that. I said, what is it? She goes, I just hope you're alive at my wedding. <laughs> Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's like, is it raining outside, you know? So, so you know, I, I talked to her about my heart condition. I say, look, the, the diagnosis I have is bad, but the prognosis is really good. There's a lot of treatment for what I have. And the doctors have told me, I could die today, and I could die well into my 80s. I knew that before I got the heart condition. God's sovereign. He's in control. But here's the thing. And this has to, I I think we get tempted into the affection of this world. And there are good things that are worth living for. 
And yet, when I think about the fact that I don't deserve to be here at all, I don't deserve to be here today. This day is a gift. This day is a day of grace. And, and then I'm challenged because I'm torn. You know, Paul said, you know, to live as Christ and to die is gain in Philippians 1.21. And he was torn between living here or being with Christ. And, and we're so duped by this world into thinking that this world is better, that there are things that we think about that draw us away from Christ. Even good things can. But here's the thing, and, and this is where, where I'm challenged, and that is, when I think about to live as Christ and to die as gain, I'm thinking about experiencing all that uh, good lives usually experience. But when Paul thinks to live as Christ and to die as gain, he's thinking preaching Christ is gain, is living Christ, preaching Christ and proclaiming Christ. And, and it's better for you for me to be here, he says in Philippians 1. So therefore, I'll remain and he was not discouraged. But that mercy that each day is a gift from God, that we don't deserve to be here, that this whole world is darkness and light. And those who are in the light know that they deserve to be in the dark still. And that's what motivates us to do what we know we should do. New covenant ministry perseveres. Let's move on. I want to move on to a second distinction of New Covenant ministry. Not only does it persevere, New Covenant ministry rejects cleverness. New Covenant ministry rejects cleverness or craftiness. Take a look at verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Once again, as you read another verse here in 2 Corinthians 4, it's not difficult to hear some of the accusations that the false teacher might have been slinging. Oh, you know, Paul, he's got a hidden agenda. He's crafty. He's very clever, that Paul. You know, it, I, I can't believe he wouldn't mention to you the old covenant. You know, how sly that is. Just that you, what, you're just saved by grace? That you don't have to become a Jew first? You know, he's not faithful to the word of God because the word of God teaches the Mosaic law and Paul didn't teach that. Shame on him. On the contrary, Paul actually says, we renounce the hidden things of shame. When Paul came to faith in Christ, his repentance was, was evident. He turned from the shameful, shameful practice of persecuting the church and almost immediately was preaching Christ. What's interesting is I think about this accusation against Paul that he was somehow crafty or clever in his speech. It's the exact opposite of what he was accused of in 1 Corinthians. Remember in 1 Corinthians, there was this division in the church, chapter 1, there was someone saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Some were arguing that uh, they were, uh, you know, Paul, we're not going to follow him because he's just a simpleton. He's not very clever. Paul responded in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superior of word or wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he plays on that fact that, that he's a fool, 
And he says, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And, and I just, I didn't come with cleverness of speech. In 2 Corinthians, they, they accuse him of being clever in his speech. So what's amazing is, you know, you think I'm ignorant and unwise? What's his response? I just preach Christ. You think I'm deceitful and too clever? What's his response? I just preach Christ. He's got the same response. And that was Paul's pattern of ministry. Turn with me again to Acts, the book of Acts. Let's take a look at verse, verse 20, chapter 20. I want to read chapter 20, verses 17 through 32. This is when Paul was traveling back towards Jerusalem, and he decided to stop by Miletus, which is the port that's close to Ephesus, and he sent for the Ephesian elders to come and meet him, thinking that this might be the, the last time he was there. And Acts 20, verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, I solemnly, testi- solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Oh, good, more, more suffering. But I do not consider my life of any account dear to myself, so that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And behold, and behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is classic Paul. This is what he did in every city, day and night, preaching the word of God, preaching Christ, going house to house with tears, ministering to people, but proclaiming the truth. And then He knew that even after he left, and he told them, after I leave, there will be people come here who are going to try and undo everything that I've done. So he tells the church leaders, protect them, look after them, watch out for them, let them know. And he commends them to what? What is the source that's going to help them? The word of God, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would think of if he walked into many of the churches that we have around us today, full of gimmicks. You see, what stands out here is that Paul resists cleverness 
But there is a movement in the modern-day church to be clever and to get people in by hook or by crook, however you can do it. And you don't have to look far. There are all kinds of things out there. I read about a pastor who was preaching and, uh, on... on He had a lion on the stage. Like, come to our church. We have a live lion on the stage. Wow. How am I going to compete with that? You know? I saw this other pastor. I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, um, he's an African pastor, and and he was was popular where we used to live when we lived in Africa. And... uh, (laughs) He showed people angels who were present when he preached. And the way he did it is he, he was preaching one time, and he, he sees somebody, he says, hey, uh, I see an angel. You know, I see an angel, right? And, and, he, and so he says, he says, who's got a camera or an iPad? Or something? And he goes up and grabs somebody's iPad. And he comes up, and he takes a picture of a person on the stage. He says, come up here. Somebody comes up there, stands there. He takes a picture, then he shows them and on the picture, it's that person with an angel above them, some kind of angelic fig- figure or something like that. This is on YouTube, among other things. And so, <laughs> but somebody has taken this and slowed down the picture. And those who are iPad people, you, you'll get this. When he takes the picture of the person, instead of pushing the take picture button, he hits the bottom corner, which says previous picture. So they slow it down. So before the thing has ever begun, he's staged a picture of the same person on the stage, and he's made some sort of like, I don't know, some sort of, I don't know, the fishing line or something. I don't know. I don't know what he did, but he didn't take a picture. The whole thing, he didn't just grab a random iPad. The whole thing was, it was a gimmick. I mean, can you get more gimmicky than that? Come to, see, come to our church. We'll show you angels. This is what's going on in churches. And it's nothing new. Paul says, we reject all that. We've renounced all that. For him, the shame was actually persecuting the church. But I think the implication is that those who were against him were also had some sort of a gimmick, and theirs was just to, to attack him and say how uh, the, the old covenant was somehow better. They were crafty. They were adulterating. They were being unfaithful to the word of God. Well, New Covenant ministry perseveres. It resists cleverness. But New Covenant ministry also, verses 3 through 5, preaches Christ. Preaches Christ. Take a look at verses 3 through 5 of 2 Corinthians 4. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. Would have been easy for the Judaizers to criticize Paul for his failures. Um, You know, Paul was committed, as we said before, to preach to the Jew first. And most of his hearers never converted. They didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So Judaizers must have had fun with that. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, 
the reason why so many Jews rejected the Messiah, was not because Paul neglected the Mosaic covenant. Turn, turn back with me to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. I spent a lot of time on this a couple of weeks ago when we were here, and I... I I felt I feel like I just want to read it and try and read it within its context with clarity. Verse thirteen, he says, I'll go back to verse twelve. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequence of what was being brought to an end. The play on words there a bit because he uses the word consequence, which can be translated as end, um, of that which was being brought to an end. And the first word there, they did not look intently at the consequence, that is the goal. What was the goal of the Mosaic Covenant? Christ. They didn't look intently at Christ because it was veiled to them. Why? Why did Paul, why did God instruct that a veil be put over Moses' face so they wouldn't look too intently at the end or the consequence, the goal of the glory which was displayed in the Old Covenant? Because they didn't have the New Covenant yet. And the Old Covenant itself was coming to an end. It was temporary. It was fading. So this was uh, not intended to be hey, look at Moses' face and you'll see Christ. You'll know that there's a Messiah. That teaching was coming, but it wasn't for them right at that time. They were responsible to believe what had been revealed to them. But they didn't understand everything about their need. They understood their need for a sacrifice. They understood there would be a perfect sacrifice, but they didn't understand. And they understood that their system was not perfect but they didn't understand everything there was about Christ. But the new covenant comes in Jeremiah 31, and much more is revealed. And we look back, and we have great clarity. And that's why preaching Christ is more glorious than the Mosaic covenant. That's why it's better. But for those who are Jews, look at 2 Corinthians 3.15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Still to this day, in Paul's day, those who were Jews, their hearts were veiled. And we talked about this. We talked about this because God's purpose was for a time where Gentiles would come, where the full number of Gentiles would come in. And there is a future time where Jews will be saved, where all Israel will be saved. And we looked at that from the book of Romans. All Israel, all all Israelites, all Jews who are alive after the church is raptured, at the end of the tribulation, those who survived that have survived that because now they have confessed Christ. Those who haven't are destroyed in Armageddon. So, so that's, that's Romans. We're, 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 I don't, I don't want to get too far off, but, but this, is, this is what he's teaching here, and, and this, is, this is grace for us. This is good news for us who are not Jews. And yet it pains us to know that not only Jews, but Gentile unbelievers are in the dark 
and it's veiled to them. And so we must proclaim the gospel. Look at 4.4 again. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, all unbelievers. Why don't they believe? Why can't you just believe? Don't, here's, the, here's the truth. Why can't? Because Satan has blinded their minds. They don't see it. For some reason, they think temporal, earthly, lusts, and rebellion against God, somehow they think that's better than forgiveness of sin and righteousness and following Christ and and having Christ's perfect life pay the price for your sin. Somehow they're blind to that fact. They think they don't need that. They're in darkness. A veil lies over their heart. Even back in 1 Corinthians, Paul taught the same thing. We preach Christ and Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. And the only way, the only thing that we can do to help get rid of that blindness is to herald the truth, is to proclaim the truth. A herald in ancient times, didn't give his own message. It wasn't a dialogue. A herald proclaimed the truth. Listen to this quote from Roy Clements in his book, The Strength of Weakness. He says this, a preacher is a herald. A herald is precisely a one-way communicator. He does not dialogue. He announces a message he has received. But if our communication experts are correct, announcements do not change anybody. Where is the flaw in their reasoning? It lies in their theology. For people who argue like this are assuming that Christian preaching is analogous to a marketing exercise. You have your product, the gospel. You have your consumers, the congregation. And the preacher is the salesman. It's his job to overcome consumer resistance and persuade people to buy. That's what... That's the theology of the world. According to Paul, there's one very simple but overwhelmed reason why that analogy is not a good one. The preacher does not overcome consumer resistance. He cannot. Consumer resistance is far too large for any preacher to overcome. All the preacher does, Paul says, is to expose that resistance in its formidable impenetrability. Uh, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the preacher doesn't save anybody. Preacher cannot save anybody. Doesn't matter how good of a preacher is, there's nothing in him that does that. There's nothing in you. You can't save anybody. You've got your relatives who are unsaved. You pray for them. You want them to be saved. You can't save them. You have children. You pray for them. You want them to be saved. You can't do it. We are all born sinners in rebellion against God, and everyone is in darkness. How can they be saved? Evangelism, says Clements, has to be proclamation because preaching is a sacrament of the divine sovereignty. In other words, what he's saying is that God opens their hearts. God removes the veil. 
He does that through the clear preaching of his word. But the preacher is only announcing what God has already spoken. And God is the one who opens their hearts. You can't do it. I can't do it. But we must speak. I, I think that, you know, we, 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 we get into this trap of we think, well, I, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, my actions speak louder than words. They don't. You know what speaks louder than words? Words. We need words. I still can't get out of my mind the story I read years ago about a, a, a person who came to faith in Christ and, and um, later met another guy at work, and the guy said, and he says, you're a Christian? He says, and the other guy says, yeah, I'm a Christian. He says, I can't believe you're a Christian. I had no idea you're a Christian. And he said, really? He said, I'm, I'm so excited you're a Christian. Uh, you know, and, and, and the new Christian said, you're one of the main reasons I didn't want to become a Christian. Because I thought if somebody could have joy and happiness and live a life like yours and not have Christ, what do I need Christ for? You see, we need to live for Christ, but we need to preach Christ. We need to speak Christ. We need to use the words. We need to herald. We need to announce So the New Covenant ministry perseveres in suffering, it resists cleverness, and it preaches Christ. Lastly, it relies on God, verse 6. For God said, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In this verse... We see God's sovereignty. At the same time, we see our own responsibility to point people to Christ. We do that through the proclamation of his word. But Paul makes reference here to Genesis 1-3. He says, light shall shine out of darkness. The same God who created everything. When When the earth was there on day one and it was formless and void, and darkness covered the earth. God said, let there be light. Before he created the sun, moon, and stars, God said, let there be light. The God who creates light is the same God, says Paul, who illumines our hearts and helps us to understand his glory. He is the one who has shown in our hearts To give us the light of what? Knowledge. The term, the knowledge, and the knowledge of the glory. This is interesting how how he keeps on using these prepositional phrases, right? He gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's talk about glory, first of all. The term glory... We get the Greek word here is doxa. We get the word doxology from it. It means brightness, splendor, radiance, greatness. It, 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 it can also be translated as honor. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word usually referred to a physical manifestation of God's, of, of God's attributes, of who he is, his holiness. Uh, his righteousness, his transcendence, his essence. 
Exodus 16.7 would be an example. But we have many manifestations of his glory. And one of them would be the glory which was seen by Moses, which then was a visible manifestation of that as well. In Isaiah 6, the prophet describes a vision where the, the glory fills the whole world. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's this idea of God's attributes, his glorious attributes, his awesome attributes. In 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, we have the glory of the old covenant, which is pictured in the, behind the veil of Moses' face, contrasted, notice in verse 6 of chapter 4, with the face of Christ. The face of Christ. The glory displayed in the face of Christ is that knowledge, that understanding of who Christ is, the light of the gospel and how it transforms your life. It's not so much a visible, physical manifestation. We're not getting into mysticism here. It's not that you should go in your room and focus or hum or do something monastic and see if you can experience his his glory. Look for his face, picture his face. There's all kinds of weird, wild stuff out there. There's a there are many Christians who fall into the trap of mysticism. But this glory is associated with knowledge, which is associated with the proclamation of his word. There's nothing mystical about it. In uh, Donald Whitney's book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, he says on page 60, this about mysticism. He says, quote, The essence of mysticism is the attempt to experience God unmediated, that is, without means. This is the belief that apart from any external assistance, you enter directly into the experience, an experience of the presence of God. The problem is, as spiritual as that may sound, the Bible never commands us to do this or ever describes such an experience. This idea that I can go in my room and shut the doors and and just meditate and somehow experience God's glory by focusing on the face of Christ, that is not a biblical concept. That is somebody who wants to experience some sort of spiritual, uh, uh, mystical experience without actually having God's word involved. How do we know the face of Christ? Because we read of Christ and we read who he is. And as much as we think, oh, if only I saw a visible manifestation of glory, we know that the understanding we have of God who came down in the flesh and for a rebel like you who nothing in you wanted to submit, nothing in you wanted to relinquish your love of sin, you, he opened your eyes and by his grace you saw that God has provided a way of salvation for you because Christ's perfect work on the cross. And when you trust in that, your sin is taken out of your account and paid for in full by Christ. And that is glory. And that is a greater glory. The knowledge of that, the knowledge of what Christ has done, every blow to his face, his nail-pierced hands, everything he's done for you, dying, conquering death, raising from the grave, his role right now as mediator, all of that 
brings you so much more glory than they had then. And so what we see is we see that we must rely on God. We must rely because the new covenant ministry not only preaches Christ, but it relies on God to do that work. And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is what Paul's trying to get across when he talks about the ministry of light. We have a few minutes, so I I didn't take any breaks today. Any questions? Yes. Point four is uh, New Covenant Ministry relies on God. Relies on God. It's verse six. Because the same creator who caused light to shine out of darkness illuminates our hearts to understand the glory of Christ. It's that understanding. It's the knowledge of the glory of Christ, which is greater, that we glory in and that we are then motivated to glorify him who deserves all glory. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, so... How do, how do we think about who's doing the shedding of the eyes? Is it God or is it Satan? In, 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 this, in this case, Satan has blinded. The God of this age is Satan. In, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, he is the prince of the power of the air. And what we learn is that God is absolutely in sovereign control. But for his own reasons and for his glory and for the benefit of men, he has allowed Satan to have a certain reign during this time. There will be a time where Satan is bound and there will be a time where he is eternally punished. And yet, for God's purposes, he has allowed the back dark drop of darkness and and evil in this world to exist. And he's given Satan a certain amount of freedom. But it's Satan who is held liable for that blinding. All right. Okay, we we start a little bit early this morning, uh, and so we're going to end a little bit early. I hope you enjoy time fellowshipping with one another. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. We do thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the fact that you are a good God. And Father, we are tempted to look at this world differently, not biblically, but unbiblically, because everything in this world is designed to lure us away from you and would encourage us to be discouraged when suffering happens, but help us to persevere even in suffering. Help us to resist the temptation to be clever or somehow think that we can can manipulate people into seeing you or knowing you, but give us the boldness that we need to preach Christ, to proclaim your truth, to herald what we know to be true, and to rely on you to do that work, trusting that you are good and righteous. May we not falter in our diligence, but be motivated more and more because of your mercy, which we are so grateful for. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.